Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really like doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today, I am so happy to introduce you to a visiting professor for IBC. Dr. Brian Robinson is a professor of religious studies who recently created a course for IBC that is called Jewish Gospel of Luke. I was finally able to look through the course and was so excited when he created some time to join me on this podcast. This particular course is packed densely with fantastic information, so you know this can only be an appetizer of the select few topics that he covers throughout the course. You can tell he has taught this information before because he starts with what my PhD advisor would call clearing your throat. This is important because we all bring things with us into class. I know that you, the listener of this podcast, come from all over the world and you live in different kinds of cities. You have different cultural experiences. All of this helps us form these cultural eyes that we see the biblical text through. Sometimes when we're coming to a topic, we are totally convinced someone said this one thing at one time, but we cannot quite remember who, what, or how I know that. But those things end up coming with us into the course. So I started my conversation with Dr. Robinson asking him about why he starts here in the class and where those assumptions even come from. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Well, I mean, that's it is such a helpful place to start because if you don't get some of those assumptions out on the table early, they tend to be like dark horses that just will be there with you the entire time. And you'll keep having to address them over and over and over again because they are assumptions that don't just influence like one detail in the text and they don't just influence the way you take this one thing. Like they are, they are formative lenses that will influence how you understand everything that's going on. And so in my experience in teaching, the first couple of times I went through this material, I tried to introduce them along the way and just found like we're having to talk about Nicaea every single week and it is just exhausting. (laughs) And so it's helpful to just get started. And and, um, I think it's also refreshing because it then lets people know, like, I'm not trying, you're not trying to surprise them. You're not trying to, like, gradually chip away at something. We're saying, like, this is the project. This is what we're after. These are the assumptions that we're going to take. These are the assumptions that we're not going to take. And I feel like it, for me, I'm trying to communicate. It's me trying to respect my audience and also have them respect the project that we're doing. Because if you're coming to this course and those are some of those assumptions are things that you you cherish and you believe in, it's important to know that up front and then to make a healthy decision as a like as a student whether or not you want to proceed. And if you do proceed, you know where like to where to watch out for some of these things. In terms of where they come from, 
Um, I wish there was an easy answer to that. Um, I think one of the one of the um, saddest parts for me as a, a as a Pauline scholar, as a scholar of religious studies, as someone who has lived in these texts for so long, is seeing the transformative power that they have for their original audiences and for the first couple of generations of readers and receivers and people who pass these texts on and how quickly the inclusive power of the gospel starts to change, um, in particular around issues of anti-Jewish bias, but also, also with regards to um, patriarchal assumptions and, and anti anti women biases, so um, you know one of the things that I get into when I when I can cover the Book of Acts is 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 how we see the community evolving in its inclusion of women, and how that's a surprise for many students of the text, people who are familiar with the church's long history and treatment of women, and then to go back and realize that you know there are amazing texts and examples within the New Testament and then like just after the New Testament where we see women as powerful leaders of communities. My favorite is to teach students about the text, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, where Thecla out, like she out Paul's, she out Paul's Paul, like she is a better (laughs) Paul than Paul himself is. And how like in the second century, there were a couple of key leaders in the church who unfortunately were like, we're not going to read that anymore. Right, and you think like how different history would be if that hadn't have been the case. And then the same thing is, uh, goes for anti-Jewish bias, where you know in the second century, in certain places, you start to see this turn against the Jewish community. And you know, there's a couple of very sad reasons for that. Um, one, I think you see the changing demographics of the community, where all of a sudden you have non-Jewish members of the believing community starting to vastly outnumber Jewish members of the community, and therefore they no longer need some of the political protection that the that being aligned with the Jewish community had previously provided them. You also see in the ancient world for for some very interesting reasons, lingering anti-Semitism. Um, part of it is because the Jews in many places, in, in what had previously been the domain of Alexander the Great, the, his kingdom, had a favorable status, sometimes more favorable than the, the native people of those places. And so there was this sort of lingering hostility towards the Jewish people as people who, you know, they didn't have to pay as high a tax, and they avoided some of the rules that we have to follow. And they're doing quite well financially while we're struggling. And you think like arguments like that have been weaponized against the Jewish people, you know, starting in the second century. I mean, even before that, actually, but like in the second century, going all the way up and continuing today. And then you see how it played a role in dividing Jews and non-Jews in these believing communities. And it's just like tragic doesn't even begin to capture how sad it is. But then you follow that line of thinking forward, and especially if you look at the works of Martin Luther, and it's it's really it's it's just it's just sad how little he understands of Judaism and how he is searching for something good in the Christian gospel. But in order for him to articulate that, he has to he creates the Jews as this anti-good object. 
And that becomes the basis of his whole theology. And you realize that he has a whole system that in order for it to point towards something positive, it, all, it has to look at an entire group of people as basically being like demonic. And, and so to try to come back to answer your question, if there's no one single place that, it, that, these, that these assumptions can, can introduce themselves in, into the Christian tradition. They've happened in all sorts of places. I think the one thing that, that, that holds many of them together is that they sadly introduce themselves when one group in the community is willing to or, or wants to try to gain some benefit by pushing out or by looking down on another part of the community. And it's like, if there was anything that was less Christian than that, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. And it's unfortunate that it has such a, a pervasive representation in the Christian tradition. Okay. You dropped 10 different gems in that answer. That is so good. It just, now I want to talk to you for several hours, but uh, we'll keep it short for the podcast. But I think I think one of the things that you, that you started in your answer by even dropping the name Nicaea, which I don't even know if everyone knows what Nicaea is or the, well, it's where we get the Nicene Creed, but this church council. And I remember when I pushed into that history that is pre, well, let's say post-Gospels, pre-Reformation, you know, and there's a lot of Christian communities that, that don't understand early church history and and the development of so many of these ideas that you talked about, which end up getting us to the point where we lose that transformative part of what the gospel is, as you also mentioned. And I think that deserves a lot of attention and scrutiny so that we know the traditions that we are a part of. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the major tragedies is that we have, you know, the New Testament was preserved. Like those texts were preserved, they were passed on, um, which it it's hard to emphasize just how unusual it is that they survived at all, right? Like these are, they're lower class texts. And I don't say that to say that they are not written well, but like I say that, that they were texts written for the lower class of the Roman Empire. Um, and and we don't have we don't have other literature that was written for the lower classes in the same capacity that we have like with the New Testament, right? So much so, and this comes up in the class, like so much so that the words so there there are words in the New Testament that we just like scholars didn't know what they meant until we started digging up landfills in Egypt. Right, because it was dry enough, they happened to be preserved, but nobody else was preserving these texts because the people who produced them and the people who read them, like they literally did not matter in the eyes of the empire. So their their writings weren't preserved. So, like in the class, we talk about how the word that that that's used for daily in describing daily bread, it's it's um, it's what's called a hapax legomena. It's a word that only occurs in the New Testament in this place, so we don't have any other places to compare it to. But also, before the 20th century, scholars had no other uses of this word at all. Like it's not it's not used in any other texts, and that's because these other texts are all like they're good literature, they're high status literature. And so, if you really want to just blow your mind about how creative people can be, go and read the history of what people did with this word because there were no constraints whatsoever. So all this stuff about 
well, if Jesus is describing this bread that God wants to give us, it has to be the best. It has to be heavenly. It has to be all of like all of this stuff. And what you really see is you see the reader themselves shining through because they get to just make up whatever they want. And then we found evidence that changed how we understood it. And not just a little bit, like the word is not, the word is used to describe like the bread that poor people had to buy every day because it was made with such low status ingredients that it went stale right away. And if you think about like the paradigm shift that that asks us to go through as readers, like it literally takes our focus from being directed upward, which can be wonderful at certain times, and it forces us to engage the earthy reality of this text and the economic reality of this text and all of these other things that people can spend their whole lives with genuine treasured relationships of the text and never encounter. And that's that's a real loss. Like not that not that, that has to be a bad way of reading, but there's a dimension that doesn't become a part of your reading. And I think you miss the fact that these texts were meant to transform like real people's lives in the here and now with all kinds of other significance. But it did definitely include that and that there are things in the text that anchor us as readers or have the potential to anchor us as readers there. And I think to prevent some of the flights of fancy that end up doing real damage to the message of Jesus. You are speaking my language. It's when I study historical geography in the land, this is one of the things I love so much. People become the real people who had to work this plot of land that happens to be really challenging to work on. And therefore, they are faced daily with difficult choices and then insert the question of what kind of faith decisions did they have to make. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, this is something so different than just like an elitist mindset of a spiritual effervescence or something. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, for um, for students who are coming to the class, especially with an interest in the Gospels, like if they've encountered this, it's probably been in some of the work that's been done on the parables, right? So like there's the um, the, the parable of the lost sheep. And, you know, again, like I, I have no experience with, with sheep. Like I... I mean, I know they make good sweaters, but beyond that, <laughs> I have no idea. But then, like, sociologists have gone to shepherds in the Middle East, and they tell them that story, and you get a whole different perspective. Like, the shepherds laugh and be like, that is the worst shepherd ever, right? That is a dumb shepherd that is very quickly not going to have any sheep at all. Because if you leave, like, if you leave the 99 to go find the one, you're going to come back. You're not going to have 99 sheep anymore. Like, they don't just stay put. No. And, and again, like you, you realize it's like that's not one or two places in the text. Like it's not this disembodied spiritual thing that like every once in a while makes a connect. It's not, it's not a bad sermon, right? It's not this thing that exists in the ether and every once in a while they're trying to like draw a connection to someone's real life. Like, no, this is a text that just exists in this world. Yeah, it's difficult to learn about, but when you start to do it, like the dimensions that you start to see in the text, and I, I think especially the, the the transformative power, the socially the social transformative power that it brings, it's what it's what has kept me going in this endeavor for as long as as I have. Well, along that line, 
Also, I was so excited to see in the way that you organized this course for IBC is, you know, it's everyone knows you're going to get to the Luke stuff, but you do the presuppositions and then you do this whole segment on Roman history. And I was like, oh, yay, thank you so much for doing that. And we at IBC, we've done a lot of different seminars and we do coursework that talks about Greco-Roman thought versus Jewish thought, like how people framed their worldview in different ways, but I'm not sure we've spent time to look at the development of the Roman empire itself, like how it goes from a republic even to these emperors. And so I know this is a massive ask of you, but can you take us through that? (laughs) What what is a quick way that we can kind of maybe put some stories on the development of this Roman Republic. And then it's gonna switch into the emperors that we get to know who are actually kind of named and are visible once we get into the gospel territory. But what transformation has been happening there? So, you know, every most people know about Julius Caesar, right? He was he was the one that sort of I mean, he was the one that stood there at that transition from um from the Republic to the Principate, from Rome being, I mean, democratic is the wrong word to use, but more more of a democratic institution. It's ruled by a group of senators who are elected. Now, granted, to be up for election, you had to be fabulously wealthy, like beyond reality wealthy, or you had to have a really good family name. And then after Julius, after Julius, um, his his ascension and then his death, right? It 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 is a it is no longer a republic. The Senate still exists to a certain capacity. I mean, it's very much like Star Wars. The Senate is still there, but really, there's the one force that's pulling like all the strings. Star Wars applies to everything. Yeah, it it really it doesn't in, in so many ways. Star Wars or Harry Potter, those will get you. So almost, I was going to say Middle Earth. Almost that that too. Yeah, um, but I. You know, Julius is really helpful in a lot of ways because both the other so so Julius's backstory is that he's not a senator, right? His family is of he, he has a great name. He has a very recognizable name, but his family has fallen on hard economic times, so he doesn't have as much money as some of these other elite youths. And so he makes himself a man of the people. He he binds himself to the group, the populare, the, the, the general people. And, and he's, a, he's a general. And so during this period of time, you know, Rome has existed in somewhat of an isolated state. And then they start to go through a period of, of expansion, of military conquest. And, and you see this happening in like the sort of as Alexander dies, Alexander the Great dies, and then there's the generals who take over for him. And there's some real, and I mean, there's all kinds of craziness in there. And here the two of us just kind of geeked out for a little bit about Alexander the Great and the split between the generals after Alex died and the Seleucids who were up in Mesopotamia and the Ptolemies who were down south in Egypt. 
We talked about Antiochus IV and Hanukkah, so many good things. And some of that history shows up in other courses we have at IBC, including Listening to the Land of the Bible Part 2, which also has a whole bunch of maps, which is always why I love it. But this part of the conversation somewhat took us off track from the transformation of the Roman Republic into something we recognize in the Gospels. So let's get back to our original question. So let me go back to your original question, because Antiochus is a bigger thing. So, you know, with with Julius, he's one of these Roman generals who are helping to expand the wealth and the fame and the empire, the, not the empire, but the kingdom of Rome, or the, 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 the land of Rome. And as they're going out, these generals are conquering these people, but they're also encountering their culture. And one of the things that you see is if you if you ever study history um, in any at any scale, you know that like these cultures never exist in a vacuum, and the conquerors and the conquered always have some sort of symbiotic relationship coming out of it. And so you know these Roman generals who must think pretty highly of themselves to begin with, they're going into these places, they're conquering these cities, and they're being hailed as divine figures, and. You know, especially in some of the Mediter- different Mediterranean um, uh, city states where they were encountering, where they were going, and they're like, "Yeah, you know what? I just I I won this battle. I have all this riches. My my soldiers love me and they celebrate me. I think I am. I'm kind of a god, right? Like people are narcissistic today. They were narcissistic back then. That's like right. that's not a real stretch. But then what happens is when those generals come back home. And what it meant to be called divine in, you know, that region that they had just conquered, when they bring that back to Rome, that starts to make people nervous. And so you have these generals who, like, when they, were, when they conquered a place, like, they, they got that money. Like, that was part of their incentive to go out and fight. And their army shared in that wealth, also part of the incentive to go fight. And they're going out, and they're, they're being successful, and they're getting rich, and they're getting famous. And they are being called these great things. And as we know, money and power and being called great things never messes with someone's relationships. So they come back home, and it, it's starting to get— it's starting to get really messy, starting to get really messy. And Julius, not having as much money as some of these other elite figures that he's in communication with, some of these other generals, he knows that his success is going to be with his ability to connect to the common people. And he starts feeding into that. And he ingratiates himself to his, his soldiers in a way that even after he's removed from leadership, they still come and they're going to fight for him. And so his popularity, his ability to bond with the common, the common citizen, not even citizen, but just the common people, ends up overthrowing the entire po- the political structure of Rome that had existed for almost eight centuries. <laughs> and it's not even Julius who then really, who really sort of cements some of the dynamics that come to dominate the 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 principate, the Roman Empire. After that, it was Julius's adopted son Augustus who, you know, is standing there. His father is dead. His father had been given these honors. He's now making sure that not only do they pass to him, but that he gets all the power that he wants. He starts, he starts saying things like, well, didn't you see when my father died, his spirit ascend up into the heavens and take its place amongst the stars? Because my father is a god. We all know that. And everyone who's there, like they've seen the battle, they know Brutus 
they, they know Brutus is dead, and so they're going to agree with them. And that immediately makes Augustus the son of God. And Augustus, and we talk about this in the class, and Augustus takes that title, and he takes everything that he wants that title to mean in a very universal and all-encompassing an all-encompassing sense, and he uses it to bring conformity and obedience within the original area of Rome, but then especially in the different city-states where Rome is now exerting itself and conquering. And that dynamic of a son of God who is using military power and the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, to, to transform the world, like that sets the stage for how the Christian gospel is then presented, which is another story, which is a euangelion, which is how Augustus presented himself, is good news about a son of God who's come to bring peace and love and prosperity to the world by transforming it, right? So when the Christian gospel is first told, right, it's not it's not being told in a vacuum, it's being told as a as a competing narrative or a counter-narrative to this one that the dominant political military power is telling about itself. And now these peasants are telling the same, a similar story, using similar language to tell a very different story about, about, this, about this Jewish fellow who lived and died in this region of the Roman Empire that nobody cared about. And you're like, how, how does not only, not only where do they get the chutzpah to do that? Like not only where do they, where do they get the nerve to do that, but how does it work? Like, how does it end up in, a, in, very, in some senses overturning the Roman empire and outlasting it in very real ways? I can't remember your question. I, I'm hope, I'm it's sure, so I hope good. that it got in there somewhere. <laughs> you did. You, you took a couple different questions I was going to do and just, uh, like put them all together, which is really fantastic because even just listening to you explain this background of the Roman empire and how the movement from Republic to empire, I think is super fascinating. And even just hearing the history allows us to go, Oh, this is already getting juicy before we read the Gospels. And on top of it, being able to say, we think modern day, the Gospels, that there's four of them and they're in the New Testament, <laughs> as opposed to the word Gospel is something that was in existence, that people knew what a Gospel, what the Evangelion was, and it meant this other political thing, is already we're like oh this is the kind of story we're telling yeah because already there's this i think juicy is the right way to say it like there is just a juicy context you're like oh the world's changing people are taking over like powers are powers are moving people are betraying each other cities like one of the examples that we go over in the class is um is an example known as the Priene inscription and it was it was basically this city kissing augustus's butt hoping for a lower tax rate but it uses all of this language, gospel, son of God, salvation, peace. And you're like, if you're just used to hearing those words, you would immediately been thinking, oh, this is about Jesus. You're like, no, it was written before Jesus was born. So it can't be about Jesus. Who's it about? And you're like, it's about Augustus, right? And we do a similar thing with, um, we do a little bit in the class, but it's, it's just so good for people to go and look at themselves. But some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, especially the Hodeot, the prayers that were a part of the the Dead Sea Scroll collection, and you you read some of them, and you're like, this is like this is Paul, 
right? This is Paul. This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about salvation um, by by faith because of grace. And then you're like, oh, it was written 150 years before Paul. So what's going on here? And if these Jews are using these words, then there's no reason why Paul and the Gospels can't use these words in the same way, right? Like it was operating then. They seem to be doing the same thing. So what's changed? And I think that's one of the things that's exciting about teaching classes like this is that we're not trying to set, like the purpose of this class and anchoring it within its Jewish context isn't to say that all the Christian stuff is just silly, but it's to, I think, find out like, what is it that makes Paul's writings as a Jew significant? What is it that makes the message of Jesus as a Jew significant, right? And it's not the faith versus works dichotomy that is so often used, it's something that's, I mean, that's really problematic. It's the the thing that makes these texts significant is that they have so much power and insight into the way that people relate to each other and can find ways across the divisions that people tend to throw up. Put up. Put up is the better way to say that, although the divisions oftentimes feel like throw up. Yeah. <laughs> And next week, we are going to get into more of the juicy bits. I don't know about you, but I hear this context and the history. And already, before we even talk about the Gospel of Luke, I am hearing how his words are echoing against those carved rocks Rome built itself on. You've been listening to a short summary of what you can learn in the new IBC course called Jewish Gospel of Luke by Dr. Brian Robinson. You can learn more by signing up for his course, and I'll put a link in the show notes just to make it easy. And you can use this course to earn credits toward Israel Bible Center's Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 